This is Cuerpa Politica, a podcast about reproductive health, politics and justice in Latin America, funded by the Institute of Latin American Studies and co-hosted by me, Dr. Rebecca Ogden, lecturer in Latin American Studies at the University of Kent. And me, Dr. Rachel Sanchez-Rivera, postdoctoral fellow in sociology at the University of Cambridge. Cuerpa Politica explores reproduction in Latin America through a series of conversations with activists, practitioners, artists, and researchers working in many different contexts. Latin American countries have some of the world's most contentious reproductive health laws and policies, and there are persistent challenges facing the quest for reproductive justice. In these episodes, our conversations with experts will explore contemporary issues, such as those relating to abortion access and obstetric violence, as well as histories of reproductive politics in the region. From the relationship between empire and reproduction, eugenics, 20th century fertility control measures and beyond. In many of the episodes, we consider culture as a lens through which to understand these contexts, exploring how cultural norms, as well as media and the arts, shape the political, legal and social realities of reproduction and vice versa. Follow the podcast on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you access podcasts and get in contact with us via our social media at Cuerpa Politica on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Dr. Tatiana Sanchez Parra is Assistant Professor at the Pinsar Institute of Social and Cultural Studies at Universidad Javeriana in Bogota, Colombia. She holds a PhD in Sociology from the University of Essex, where she also obtained a Master's in Human Rights. Working at the intersection of feminist socio-legal studies, anthropology of violence and medical anthropology, her research explores gender-based sexual and reproductive violence in contexts of war and political transition. This work has been published in English and Spanish in journals such as the Bulletin of Latin American Research, the International Journal for Crime, Justice and Social Democracy, Critica Penal y Poder and the International Journal of Transitional Justice. Currently, she's part of the Gender Advisory Committee of the Colombian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for which she has co-authored a report on forced motherhood. Dr. Sanchez Parra is also a member of the international consultancy team in charge of writing the Colombian report on opportunities for reparations for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence for the Global Survivors Fund. so many interesting things to talk about based on your doctoral research your postdoctoral research your participation in consultancy teams and um, committees I wonder if we could just start by discussing your doctoral research um, which looks at individuals who are conceived children who are conceived as a result of systematic sexual violence by paramilitaries in Colombia. Could you tell us a bit about the context of this research and what kind of questions you were seeking to answer? Mm, yes, absolutely. Uh, so I guess the first thing that we should start with is that Colombia has one of the longest armed conflicts in the world. Um, so for over, and it's ongoing, so another four, so for over 60 decades now, we've had right-wing paramilitaries, we've had left-wing guerrillas, armed forces at various points, international troops, and all of these groups in 
different moments and following different interests have committed and continue to commit sexual violence. So I guess that's the, the, the umbrella of my research. But then what happens is that in the context of the Colombian armed conflict, what we see is that although it has been ongoing for over 60 years, it was in the 80s with the escalation of the conflict that sexual violence became more systematic. And, and when I mean when, what I mean with more systematic is not this idea of sexual violence as a weapon of war and no strategic uh, and it's strategic uses, but uh, systematic in a way that as the armed conflict um, reached those unprecedented levels uh, in various ways, then sexual violence was used by all of those armed groups to control the population, to exercise uh, social control, to intimidate, but also to consolidate militarized projects in those regions. And this is following economic interest and economic purposes. Mm. So what happened is that in those regions of the country, which are, well, those strategic regions for economic purposes, like for example, uh, no extractive industry. So where we have you know, mining, we have you no know, oil, gold, uh, water, and so on and so forth, but also where we have like strategic strategic regions for uh, like not the production, the chain production of drugs and distribution of drugs. So all of those regions uh, became um, the not the interest of armed groups. And as that happened, then armed groups started combining sexual violence also with those other forms of violence like mass displacement, massacres, uh, land dispossession. Mm. So we see how armed groups following their interest and their interest of the economic and political allies have militarized most of the country, especially those regions where their economic interests are. Mm. And I've mentioned the extractive interest industries and I've mentioned the, like the drug business, but also, we have these other industries that have to do with, for example, the expansion of uh, monocrops. Uh, so in those regions, we also see that no, those are industries that you would never or you would not immediately connect with the armed conflict. But what we see is mass displacement, for example, to consolidate products of monocrops with uh, palm oil trees or uh, sugar cane. Mm. So in all of those regions, that's most of the country, what we see is that sexual violence now has been used in the consolidation of the militarized projects, but also in combination with those other forms of violence, again, like mass displacement, land dispossession, massacres, torture, so on and so forth. So now, as we know, of course, oh, capitalism works together with patriarchy. And as we know, the roots of those and the interest and the logics of those are racist, sexist, heteronormative. So those are the social orders that armed groups have imposed and seek to impose in all of those regions. Um, what, what we find in those regions is that those are the regions where Afro-Colombian peoples live with, indigenous peoples live with, communities, with peasant communities live. And I'm not saying that sexual violence has always has only been committed in those regions, but but that is an important aspect to consider when we talk about the impacts of sexual violence and the, those um, social orders that the armed groups have tried to impose. Mm. So going to my research, 
what has happened is that, of course, after decades of armed conflict and after decades of sexual violence being part of the repertoires of violence of the armed groups, well, there are generations of children born, of people born as a result of the of the abuses. Uh, and then what happened at some point is that, and as I said, we have right-wing paramilitaries, left-wing left guerrillas, armed forces, and, and so on and so forth again. But at some point with the demobilization uh, of paramilitaries in around 20, uh, uh, 2004, what we started hearing was rumors about groups of children who were born as a result of paramilitary sexual violence and and how people in some communities were pointing at them and referring to them as a little paramilitaries paraquitos. Mm. And this is very, I mean, this is this is just heartbreaking and is and it's awful in various ways, of course. But but in academic terms, one of the interesting things about about this revelation of the of the label is that, of course, sexual violence was not only committed by paramilitaries, and yet it was with the paramilitary demobilization that we started getting those stories and those rumors of you know, these groups of children in different parts of the country. Mm, so that's, that's, it. that's, I think, a very broad context of my research. And that's where the research starts with, with that Kind of like with that rumor, with that whisper mm. of of stories about los paraquitos. Mm. So that, that's so interesting. Thank you for explaining just how complex those set of factors are. I think that's really helpful to understand that it's not just to do with the um, violence related to the conflict, but there's all these kind of other factors that are entangled. When we when you talk about this, these how these stories emerged about these paraquitos, these children born of conflict, how how are they being framed in different contexts? How are they being discursively framed? Um, perhaps in the different types of media, the different legal contexts that you've looked at, and thinking about sort of human rights discourses and what kind of tensions surround those discursive framings. Mm. So. And I guess I'm going to start with the international context, where is, where is the where most of the literature is, and is that so? What we what we knew about the category of children born of war uh, came mostly from from contexts like uh, not the war in the former Yugoslavia or the genocide in Rwanda, uh, and most recently the northern northern Uganda, um, Haiti, and and what we knew based on that literature was that those children, children born as a result of sexual violence committed by armed groups, were usually discriminated against and uh, experienced different forms of mm, direct physical violence, but also structural violence. That literature and the first, let's say, the first waves of literature on children born of war uh, in relation to these kind of armed con conflicts was very was trying to explain what was happening to these children and to these people who were, of course, growing up uh, in terms of a stigma. And the idea was that because people assumed that these people, these children were the perpetuation of the violence their fathers imposed and of 
the military roles their fathers had, then these children were going to be discriminated against uh, and never going to be part of their communities uh, because of that linked to their fathers. Mm. And of course, this, this means that in terms of what the mother contributes to, to that child, then, well, it's, it's complicated, no? because then you assume that the mother is this vessel of reproduction, no? and, mm-hmm. that, and that's it. Uh, but then what, uh, what, the literature, what the research has shown us and those, uh, those research, uh, sorry, and those research have, that have been able to, to broaden the idea of stigma, like for example, Kimberly Thaydon, no, Erin Bain or Miriam Denoff in Northern Uganda. What, what their research has shown us is that it's not, it's not only a matter of a stigma because stigma is really a very limited concept to understand the violence and the experience these people experience. And what they've shown us in the research is that the meaning that their communities uh well, the way their communities approach them has changed and it changes throughout the life course of this child and the relationship with his or her community and with you know, his or her mother. So that was the first idea. So these people were discriminated against. So that was my assumption when I started doing research in Colombia that I was going to find, based on this idea of los paraquitos, based on the label, I assumed that what I was going to find was this perpetuation of discrimination and violence towards these people based on who their fathers, biological fathers were. Mm. Uh, And what happened is that when I started doing fieldwork and when I started like digging deeper into into the context, what I understood was that, well, first that that wasn't the case. And, and that label of los paraquitos that of course represents and and yeah i don't think you need to uh like really be an expert in the to- in the you know in these issues to to see how outrageous it is to call a, a child you no know, paraquito uh and the different violences that that imply but what i saw is that that label had had vanished and at the same time that it was increasing it was doing this creation of of these very static subjects, of course, that we find in the discourse of sexual violence as a weapon of war. So it was women as victims and, and as victims of, of sexual violence in particular, and uh, men as perpetrators of sexual violence. And, and of course, in the case of women, there was this very passive um, understanding of their role and of the role in their own victimization also, in the victimization that they experienced. Uh, So what we found is that whenever there was a mention to children born of war or to children born as a result of the the sexual violence that women had experienced, it was to play a role. It was kind of like an adjective. And it was included to play a role as a perpetuation of of the victimization of women and of women understood as this uh, like damaged good or uh, or to reinforce an idea of women's resilience. So all of that to say <laughs> discursively that, that this binary 
between you know, children in relation to women as damaged goods or children in relation to motherhood was and continues to be the main way that these children appear in the narratives. And we take that to the human rights agenda. And when we see, for example, what's happening with, with that question that I uh, like no, through <laughs> in relation to why they haven't received attention in, in that agenda, in the human rights agenda, that, that's still very much there. It is changing, but it is very much there. And what when you go to the community, that's I think a different story. But it also has to do with with the naturalization of motherhood. In that way, then it's it's almost a reiteration of the figure of the sort of madre abnegada, the self-sacrificing mother that you see in lots of different Latin American cultures, which in itself is a kind of reflection of um, iconography of the the Virgin Mary or the Virgen de Guadalupe. Or so that's really interesting. I've never thought about how that madre abnegada kind of might intersect with ways of discursively negotiating trauma like the trauma that you're you're discussing that results from sexual violence um that occurs in this systematic at this systematic scale could you explain perhaps for someone who's not familiar to processes of transition to democracy how those occur on lots of different levels legal political um uh, in terms of collective memory, collective history, could you um, explain how that kind of national redress of reproductive injustice, how it fits into the broader challenge of transitional justice in Colombia? So, um, for example, in, in the uh, 2011 Ley de Victimas y de Tierras, the Land and Victim uh, Victims and Land uh, Restitution Act. Could you just explain to us which different actors, which different institutions are involved in addressing this kind of reproductive injustice and how that fits into the broader transition to democracy? So we in Colombia we started talking about transitional justice in with the uh, Ley de Justicia y Paz that was in the between 2003 and 2005. Mm and that's when we started that's when we started talking about transitional justice but since then and and that does not mean that that was the first process or that was the first moment that uh, institutional where institutional and legal frameworks were created to deal with the armed conflict so we had previous moments uh when we talked about the peace processes and demobilization of groups but it was not until then that we talked about not the transitional justice and and of course that has to do also with the emergence of transitional justice in the in the 90s mm, but then since then since then we've had and we continue to have different layers of different transitional justice architectures operating at the same time so it is it is super complicated and it's really like a maze to to navigate so we have a process with paramilitaries that started back then in the 2000s. You said it well. So that's when it started, but that's something that is still ongoing. So we still have trials to paramilitaries. We and and that process goes very very slowly. Uh, so in 15 years, we've had like 77. Uh, 
judgments. So that goes very slow. But then we also have the, the uh, victims law. That's 2011, and that brings that brings a like a that changes the approach because that's when we start talking about like a victim centered approach to transitional justice. And then, and, and I'm just jumping like from moment to moment, there is so much to like unpack in each of these. But then now we are talking about the peace process with FARC and, and that brought its own huge infrastructure and architecture. And, and with that, we have, for example, the special jurisdiction for peace, we have, and, and I'm saying all of this because all of those have very fascinating moments in relation to reproductive violence. We have the Truth Commission and we have the unit, I don't know how to say that in English, the unit for the search of uh, disappeared people who were forcibly disappeared. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then the thing is that what's happening right now is that, of course, most of the attention, and as it has happened worldwide, was placed. And most of the efforts were, were placed in sexual violence, not in the recognition of sexual violence and, and how it was and has been used by various armed conflicts in the context, uh, yeah, in by various armed groups, sorry. Mm. And, and then what happened is that those mentions to reproductive violence had to do mostly with abortion. Mm. And it was not until like this most recent moment with the with the peace negotiation with FARC that reproductive violence started gaining a more significant role in the discussions. <laughs> and there I feel that the role of the Truth Commission has been has been really, really, really significant. Mm. So the Truth Commission has a gender team, uh, and the gender team of the Truth Commission is uh, com- composed well, by amazing, amazing women who who come from the feminist movements and from women's organizations that have that really, really, really know the context of the Colombian armed conflict, but also of the uh, well of the feminist struggles internationally. So what they've tried to do is they've tried to really broaden the categories of sexual violence. Uh, to include the categories of reproductive violence. So that comes with the recognition, for example, of forced forced sterilization, uh, forced abortion, uh, uh, forced pregnancies, uh, and well, and many other categories. And we see, so something's very interesting that's happening there is that as part of the mandate of the Truth Commission, what they are trying to do is also identify patterns in relation to reproductive violence as a separate uh, form of violence from sexual violence. And that's a huge challenge because just managing the recognition and the acknowledgement of the different forms where sexual violence have and continue uh, to to have an impact on, on people's lives is, is huge. And of course, no one, as it always happens, want to recognize sexual violence. But the thing with reproductive violence it, is that it has, it has been so uh, 
it continues to be understood as something that is collateral, you know, and that is mostly women's issues. Mm. And in the case of forced motherhood, for example, that is one of the categories that they are trying to recognize. One of the main issues they've had is one of the main issues they've had is that although we know it's it's there, and of no, and of and of course we know, and people come and give their testimonies, and they motherhood is part of that, then that's that's the end of that story because the naturalization is so that that there is so what we find is just a series of gaps in the in the in the recognition of those violences something that colombia has that something that something that colombia has is that it it's had like very sophisticated legislation and and at the same time it has very strong uh, a civil society, so that, and I guess that's the result of like decades of armed conflict. No, that's a way to to resist. So, so that inclusion in the victims' law of children born as a result of sexual violence that's that's the result of that. That's the result of very strong social movements of, in in particular, in terms of uh, women's um, rights. Uh, so that's the result of that. That doesn't mean that in you know, in the streets and in the life of in the everyday life of people, that doesn't mean that law has an impact in the life of people. No, so it's like it's this tension and con- constant tension between you know, the political struggles of social mom- movements of victims organizations pushing and trying to to really make a, a, a well to impact those agendas. And, and gaining spaces in those legal agendas, for example, this category of children born of war, but also, well, the armed conflict still there, the elites are the same. So, so the impact in women's life and in people's lives in their everyday well, life is, is that's, that's not so much there. Yeah, and if I can say one last thing in terms of, of reproductive violence there, uh, is that there is this other like very, like a landmark that is going to have, we hope it's going to, we hope it's going to have like big impact here, but also internationally. And is that sexual violence, of course, sexual violence and reproductive violence has also been committed like inside the armed groups. And that's, that's something that has very slowly it has has very slowly gained attention but very 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 slowly and what happened in the last two years is that with the with the support of organizations like for example women's uh, women's link worldwide like victims and and women who were recruited by armed groups have managed to put forward the their cases and their experiences so now the Colombian Constitutional Court recognized that women who were or people who were recruited uh, in armed groups and who were mm, victims of sexual violence, but who also experienced forced abortion and forced contraception are also victims of the armed conflict. And and that's a huge landmark. Not much has happened in terms of the implementation of reparations for those 
uh, people, but but there is some uh, they've gained some space at least in terms of legislation, which it is an achievement. Based on this um, very um, comprehensive and succinct description that you've just given about how the law shifts um, to include people, to include important um, narratives and address issues that are unresolved. My question is, what's next in the context that you look at and maybe in the context that you look at? And maybe if you could speak to the broader context of humanitarian settings in Latin America or, or context of political violence. So, of course, I think at this point we recognize that that one path has to do with the law. And, and of course, we continue, as we've seen all around the world, to the fight for legal abortion, for example. And But at the same time, I think at this point, we also recognize that that no, like law is just only a path. Like if if we don't really try to transform, no, that if we don't if if we don't really try to transform the patriarchal structures, no, and the racist, colonial, no sexist, heteronormative regimes that also try to no, assume control over our bodies, identities, reproductive autonomy, then then we we are not going no we are not going anywhere mm. well i guess we are yeah so so i guess what comes next at least in the colombian context i think is just to continue like putting those struggles together uh, and and it is it is it is challenging of course but I do feel that the context of, but I do feel that the that the combination of those struggles together are really, really gaining spaces and are really trying to, um, to transform. And I think that's where you see uh the transformation in not the possibility of the transformation. Now, the law is one tool, but but it is only one tool. Um, and probably that's where I see the most uh, potential of of spaces like the Truth Commission. Right? Is that the Truth Commission, unlike uh, unlike tribunals, well, it's not limited by legal categories, and it can. I, I'm something over optimistic, and but and. But I do feel that there is, but there is something in the Truth Commission that can give or can like open the door for other paths to be followed. Think about reparations again. So, so the thing with holistic reparations, as as we are learning in this project, is that, or as I am learning in this project, is that of course with the league when we focus so much in the legal categories, then we forget that the main purpose of talking about preparations is to really have a an impact and to transform not only no not only that that very specific thing that you know, that you might want to address with compensation or with satisfaction, which is not to say that those are small, but no, we cannot talk about reparation to vict of to victims of sexual and reproductive violence if we don't understand the context in which those people have to raise their children, the very precarious conditions 
mm, the economic violence, uh, not the different forms in which you know, for us, racism and sexism operates in their lives. So I think that's where that's where most of the challenges are, I think, and is that we are still thinking in terms of how to achieve compensation, how to achieve re, uh, no, satisfaction, how to achieve rehabilitation. And I'm not saying that, again, that those are small things, but I think that because those have been so difficult to achieve uh, and there is so much invested in that, we, I feel, sometimes lose you know, a perspective on where the biggest goal is and is that of reproductive no, justice. And especially in our conversations with indigenous women and Afro-descendant women, I feel that that relational, the relations behind that, the power relations, but also the power relations in terms of care. Uh, I feel I feel that's where I'm learning the most and how to how to care and how to talk about motherhood and and nurture in ways that are not defined by capitalism and defined by also by the sexual violence that they have experienced. So I guess the biggest challenge to me is to really think about reproductive justice, not in the terms that not in the terms that a patriarchal capitalist system forces us to think, but how to think outside that system and and how to see what we are not um, well seeing. Thank you to the Institute of Latin American Studies, School of Advanced Study, University of London for generously funding this project. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cuerpa Politica. Join us for a new episode every fortnight and click on the follow button to receive notifications about podcast episodes. 